Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bundesliga show uh, brought to you by Over the Bar and uh, welcome along to a, a very special bonus edition of the Bundesliga uh, show as uh, I'm sure you'll uh, all recognise the man to, to my right on the screen. We've, we've been joined by Derek Ray, uh, absolute legend in the commentary world um, and he's given up his time uh, to join us for a little bit of a chat about Bundesliga. So I'm hugely excited. Unfortunately, Mark um, hasn't been able to join us due to work commitments, but we've got three three brilliant kind of categories to cover with Derek. Um, first of all, Derek, how are you? And it's really nice to have you on the show. Well, it's really nice to be with you, Rory. Thank you very much for the invitation. I know we've been trying to set this up for quite some time and haven't managed it properly uh, due to my crazy schedule, but uh, it's great that we have some time to sit and talk about our common love, namely the Bundesliga. Absolutely. Um, so just as a bit of a, an overview to, to everyone that's going to be watching the show, um, we're, we're going to chat a little bit about the, the managerial merry-go-round that, that has been going on this season in the Bundesliga and um, try and, and nail down some of the reasons why why some of these moves have happened. Um, so we'll, we'll be talking talking through that for a little bit with, with Derek um, and then we'll move on to a bit of a season season review uh, of course there is still uh, one game to go in the Bundesliga uh, as we're recording now um, with still uh, still a good few things to uh, finalize uh, with regards to the Europa Conference League place and of course the relegation race and then we'll finish off with uh, a few uh, few questions for Derek because I'm I'm very keen to uh, be able to ask some of these questions of course um I kind of feel like I already half know you, Derek, from from playing FIFA so much. I'm used to you, uh, used to used to you telling me that I should be doing better from where from where I'm shooting from. So sorry, yes. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's a privilege to have you on the show. So we'll dive straight into it then. So we'll move into our uh, our first category of uh, of the day, and yeah, it's with regards to the managerial merry-go-round. So. Um, before we try and summarise all the different changes that have basically gone on um, so far this season, um, on the face of it, Derek, based on the changes that you've seen um, within this season so far, are, are you expecting, A, the Bundesliga maybe to have a different look to it next season with regards to uh, you know certain teams being at the top or, or at the bottom and do you kind of see any managerial appointments as well that make you think that really excites me and that that might you know go really well or something that maybe doesn't fit as much? Um, on the last one, I think the jury is still out. I think we've learned this season that it's difficult to quantify these things and a club can make a coaching change and it can have an immediate impact for that club. A different club can make a change and it has no impact or a negative impact. So I, I think it's very hard in advance to say, yes, that absolutely is going to work. I mean, we can have an idea. We can certainly say that certain coaches fit certain clubs based on the way they're trying to play and based on squad compositions and things like that. But my inclination is that we're not going to see substantial changes in the pecking order 
in the Bundesliga next season. There are always surprises. I mean, I'm sure yeah. we'll be talking about surprises and uh, teams overachieving and underachieving. Um, with regard to the coaching changes this past season, the one that really strikes me above all others as having done the job would be that of um, Mainz and Bo Svensson. And it wasn't just Bo Svensson, though. Remember, when they made that change, they also at the same time brought in Martin Schmidt as sporting director, who had previously been the coach and knew the, the DNA of that club. And let's not forget the much maligned Christian Heidel, who had been really Mr. Mainz for almost a couple of decades in different roles, but on a decision-making level during the, the Klopp years, during the Tuchel years, went to Schalke and then sort of saw his reputation damaged a bit by the decisions he made at Schalke. And I don't think he would be one to tell you that, that he's all that proud of what he did at Schalke, but at Mainz, a different story. And he mm -hmm. does understand the club. So it's a long-winded way of saying that, for me, it's not always just about the coach. It's about what the club is doing as a whole. I think this is something yes. that, as people get more and more into German football, they understand that this is not England, for example, where a mm. manager comes in and he you know, recasts the club in his image and everything is done with that manager deciding everything. Um, that's not the German way. And um, let's hope it, it never becomes the, the German way. So, um, yeah, I mean, Svensson would be one that, that I would say above, above all the others um, strikes me as having made a, a, an impact that is telling. And, you know, look at the points total. Mainz were going to be relegated. We all assumed they would be. And yep. now they're safe. Absolutely. It's a fantastic point you bring up there, Derek, with regards to not only the head coach role, which is often the what we in the Premier League or England would refer to as the, the manager. Mm. Uh, there is everything above it. So an interesting case in point might be the the recruitment that might need to be done at, for example, Frankfurt, because not only now are they looking to replace Adi Huta, um, they've also lost their, their sporting CEO and their sporting director. So certain, obviously, choices and, and recruitment need to be made sensibly particularly in that point of view for, for Frankfurt, do they go for an all-rounder who can maybe do all three roles or or do they then do that tiered approach, which is obviously is, is common in the Bundesliga? Do you think, well, obviously we don't want to see the, the same model in the Premier League, but do you think some teams maybe try and cast the net out for an all-rounder who can do some of, some of the extra bits and the recruitment as well? I don't really think so uh, in Frankfurt's case. And of course, they've already brought on board Markus Kröscher as the uh, the new uh, Sportvorstand, to use the German word, basically, as you said, the, the sporting CEO. And uh, he was at Leipzig. And before that, maybe just as significantly, was at Paderborn, where he knew how to find bargains. He knew how mm -hmm. to establish a scouting network with a more limited budget. And so he's obviously, obviously somebody who's been very appealing to the decision makers at Eintracht Frankfurt. And then you have Ben Manga, who was already there as the squad planner. Uh, he's been promoted squad planner, chief scout, to then be the sporting director working under Markus Kröscher. So, so they're definitely not going um, the English way. I, I don't really think many if any, Bundesliga clubs will go that way. Because if you think about it, um, 
what you're doing then is you're putting all your eggs in that basket. And if it goes mm. wrong, then you're having to rebuild a club. And that's just not the German way. The German way is to build um, uh, confidence over a, a number of years. There's this great German word, Planungssicherheit, which literally means security of planning. And um, to have security of planning, you need to have a long-term vision. And a mm -hmm. short-term manager is not going to give you that. So I, I don't really see that coming in. Um, but what is interesting with Frankfurt is who, they, who they're going to choose as coach. Um, and the name Edin Terzic has become hotter and hotter in the last few days. And yeah. he is certainly a candidate for that job. Whether that's a job he wants, we don't know. He's been a bit coy, understandably. He's, you know just guided Dortmund to uh, Pokal success and got them into the Champions League, maybe against all the odds. Mm. And is due to, as you know, to stay on as part of the coaching staff under the new coach, Marco Rose, moving from Borussia Mönchengladbach. But he is a wanted commodity elsewhere. Mm. And that Frankfurt job is high profile. But again, if you're a coach, you're maybe asking yourself, is this the right time? Because that team is going to be broken up to a large extent. They missed out yeah. on the Champions League. They'll be in the Europa League. Next season might be more of a struggle for them. We just don't know. You know, it could be a transitional year. So sure. maybe, some, maybe somebody like Terzic calculates that it's better to sit and wait on the coaching staff at Dortmund for the next big opportunity. But, you know, that is a big club and uh, an underperforming club for a long time. So it's going to have its appeal. And, um, yeah, I think of all the, the jobs that are around, that is interesting. The Leverkusen one, to me, is interesting as well. Yeah. And um, Terzic might be a candidate. I'm hearing in the last couple of days less so. They may be looking at uh, another name who um, uh, another name that's come up in the last few months, um, talked about with regard to most openings in Germany, uh, Gerardo Seoane from Young Boys young in boys, Switzerland. Yeah. yeah, and you know that's sort of what we're looking at nowadays. We look at who's in charge of Young Boys in Switzerland, who's in charge of Salzburg in Austria, and generally that is a, a ticket uh, into the Bundesliga. It was for Adi Hütter, who happened yeah. to, to coach both of those teams, Salzburg <laughs> and Young Boys, uh, and then got himself into the Bundesliga with Frankfurt, and now is moving on to Gladbach, just to continue the theme of the, the coaching carousel. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So um, we'll kind of move on then to perhaps some of the reasonings behind why all these changes have have come come about. And and the second point that we'll move on to after that is is some of the interesting timing that we've seen as well with regards to announcements. So we'll start we'll start with the first part with regards to maybe some of the reasons why we've seen so many changes this season and. Um, I wanted to ask you, Derek, whether you thought it was maybe a, a bit of a mix of, uh, on the one half, opportunity. Um, so maybe certain opportunities opening up, such as, obviously, we saw Hansi Flick moving on and the perfect then opportunity to move uh, Nagelsmann into to Bayern and, and other jobs like that. But then on the other side of it, some really, really bad bits of form that teams have gone on um, that have left uh, the clubs with effectively no choice but to remove the head coach. Obviously, we saw Lucien Favre uh, lose his position. Leverkusen had to re remove Peter Bosch. Uh, Bremen have obviously just pulled the trigger very recently as well. So, uh, Derek, do you, do you think it's just been one of those seasons or, or has it been a bit of a mixture of what I just kind of related to? 
I think it started with Schalke and, of course, their horrendous um, form coming into the season, you know, based on what mm. happened last season and then yeah. um, losing 8-0 on the first game and then <laughs> losing again. And that was the end for David Wagner. And they were always yeah. sort of chasing their tail thereafter. And mm. so Schalke are making all these changes, you know, and, and Manuel Baum didn't last too much longer, you know, a few months right. in the job, but, yeah. but it was change after change after change. And um, I think other clubs were looking at this and, you know, everybody's always watching what's happening elsewhere. As you said, really? Dortmund made the change at the tail end of the calendar year. They just decided, really on the back of the defeat at the hands of Stuttgart, although it wasn't just because of that one result, but on the back of that, they decided that it wasn't working to their satisfaction under Lucien Favre. And mm. they wanted to make a change for the long haul. They decided to go with Edin Terzic on a short-term basis, somebody who was already in the dressing room. And that didn't start brilliantly for him, it has to be said. That that Very had true. wobbles. Yeah, I mean, it's really, we're singing his praises now, but mm. it didn't appear in, say, January or early February that uh, that Edin Terzic was likely to be talked about in such terms. Mm -hmm. um, so, But I think um, you hit on something earlier, talking about Hansi Flick, um, but it was really before Hansi Flick that this domino effect that um, has rippled through German football. And, yes. you know, I sort of point to the, the Marco Rosa um, courtship by mm -hmm. um, Borussia Dortmund. Now, this was an ongoing story for a while. Max Eberl at Gladbach kept having to ask, uh, kept having to answer questions about his coach Rosa. Was mm. he going to stay? Because it was common knowledge that there was a buyout clause, and uh, and this is part of, you know, what we're getting to here is that um, we've never really in the past spoken about release clauses for coaches. We've spoken about it for players, very common in Germany, but not so much for coaches, and not with regard to you know. 5 million euro, 6 million euro, 7 million euro fees, you know? That was previously thought to be something that just wouldn't happen with a coach. You sign a contract with a coach and you see it through. You might get sacked. Um, you might be able to, to leave on, on good terms um, somewhere along the line. But this idea of a release clause, another club coming in, paying a set fee, and then as a result of paying that set fee, being able to just take that coach away, whisk him away, for the next season. So with Rosa, it started. And then, of course, Ebal at Gladbach needed a coach himself. So what does he do? He goes out and yeah. does pretty much the same thing and, and yeah. uses a release clause to get Adi Hütter from Eintracht Frankfurt and so on. And, of course, all the while, this Hansi Flick thing is going on. And I think those of us who follow Bayern closely have known almost from day one that the DFB job, the Bundestrainer job, really is grist to the mill of Hansi Flick. That is the dream job. That's where he would like to, to be for the long term. It's not that Bayern's not a dream job, but I think he saw it as something to do for a short period of time, have success, which he did, and then move on to this um, job that in Germany, next to the um, the Bundeskanzler or the Kanzlerin, the, the Chancellor, is, is maybe the, the second most high-profile job in the entire country. I think it's often underestimated outside Germany um, what the national team still is and the, the profile of that job. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it was always understandable that Hansi Flick wanted that uh, and he couldn't quite come out and say it, but he wouldn't say that he was committed to Bayern for the long term. So so there you have it with that one. And um, 
when you're talking about Bayern, of course, and a vacancy, then we're always talking about Julian Nagelsmann. He's a young guy from Landsberg am Lech. He grew up supporting Bayern. He mm. is the hottest of all coaches in Germany. And when you're in that category, then, you know, Bayern are going to be the club that you're going to want to go to. And that is his dream job. He said it, you know. So all these things kind of falling into to place. But, of mm. course, when somebody leaves, and you mentioned Peter Boss, you know, he leaves at Leverkusen. That creates a vacancy currently filled by Hannes Wolf, but on an interim basis. He has another job to go back to with yeah. the DFB, potentially. Um, have they seen enough from him to make them think that he's the man uh, on a permanent basis? I'm not sure. Mm. I think they might have said that already if, if they were convinced. And so they're yeah. looking at other candidates. And we mentioned earlier, uh, Gerardo Seoane, I think, is a strong one. So, um, yeah, it, it's... Um, you know, it's fascinating. It's um, unusual because I don't remember a season like this where we've had so many changes that involve a vacancy cropping up and then having to be filled by somebody else and usually yeah. somebody else already within the league and so on and so on and so on. You sort of layer one on top of the other and mm. you just get utter confusion. And uh, we still are in that um, sort of moment of confusion with regard to a few of these jobs. Very much so. Uh, and then just to finish off, basically, on this on this managerial section that we've just been covering um, is in regards to the timing of some of these announcements. And as you quite rightly mentioned, that there, there has been this domino effect, uh, as uh, which obviously uh, you quite rightly say started with Marco Rosa going to uh, or being recruited by Dortmund and then vacancy after vacancy came up and it kind of spiralled from there on in. But I'm just interested, Derek, to see what your opinion may be on on potentially, obviously, the timing of the changes happened when they happened. Obviously, the buyout clauses, as, as you mentioned, were met. But do you think maybe they could have been dealt with in-house and maybe these announcements delayed and left until the end of the season to potentially help some of the teams that were losing their head coaches? Because we've seen Gladbach completely dissipate, disappear after the announcement of Rosa. Uh, and quite typically, we've seen it with Frankfurt as well after Hooters' announcement. They, their form with, and without kind of saying it bluntly, their, their run-in wasn't too bad. Uh, and they were looking like strong favourites for, for the top four. And, and that's obviously not happened. So do you think maybe some of the clubs could have handled it slightly better? Or is that being harsh? Well, I think we're viewing it now with the benefit of hindsight. What I would say in response to that is that this has not really been a problem in Germany before. And, and this has mm. happened before. I mean, even as recently as a couple of seasons ago, we knew that Julian Nagelsmann was leaving Hoffenheim for Leipzig a whole year in advance. And nobody thought that was a problem, you know, and it mm -hmm. wasn't a problem. And he was able to go about his business fine. And yeah. no, and it didn't cause, you know, loss of morale at the club. Nico Kovac, you'll remember, was mm -hmm. in charge of Frankfurt when they beat Bayern in the Pokal <laughs> final. And we knew that. We'd known that for quite a while ahead of time that he was going to Bayern. Um, but, you know, that didn't mean that the players stopped playing for him. So I think that we have to maybe not be... Um, reacting in a knee-jerk fashion to this. Uh, yeah. I, I will admit that that my views maybe have revised a little bit because I've always sort of been of the, the German belief, and this goes back to sort of German business practices, that, yeah, you know, you, you uh, 
um, you fulfill a contract. If your contract runs until, say, June, then you're utterly professional until June. And then when a new contract with a different employer comes along in July, you're utterly professional there. And, you know, that happens, to be honest, in everyday working life for, for everybody in, in every country. People move on and people, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll wager that at your work somewhere along the line, um, you've known that somebody is leaving. You know, they're leaving down the line. They don't have to leave that day. They they have to be forced out the door. People Mm -hmm. trust that there is still professionalism going on. And there's professional pride, you know, because you you don't want to have your your CV besmirched by a bad run of, in this case, results. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's probably given people pause for thought. And I, I do think the buyout clause that we mentioned earlier is at the root of the consternation here because we are talking mm-hmm. huge sums of money for coaches. And previously that wasn't in play. I mean it, it probably was, but it was it was not as public yeah. and, and certainly not as, as high um, a figure um, that we we, be, we would be talking about. So I think um, it, it will be interesting to see what happens with regard to these release clauses going forward and whether teams will be quite as quick to to make these announcements, um, you know, two-thirds of the way through the season. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, that, that, that really well rounds things up, actually, with regards to managerial merry-go-round that, that we have seen. Um, that was really good to chat, chat with you uh, over there, Derek. And we'll move now on to our our second little section now, which is a bit of a season review. Uh, we won't go into too much tremendous depth. Uh, of Obviously, as recording now, there is one game still to go, but it shouldn't change an awful lot with regards to our opinions anyway of what, what we've seen so far. Um, so j- just a quick one to start with, Derek. Um, season's pretty much gone gone to fashion so far, um, as we'd expect. Buying champions are similar looking top four um and obviously there's been a few runners and riders that have struggled somewhat a little bit more than others so uh, have have you pretty much seen it as uh, as you would have expected at the start of the season um in some areas yes and in others no i mean as you said um i i had bayern winning the title i had dortmund coming in second i had leipzig third so it's not going to be a million miles away from that Um, I didn't see Wolfsburg as a Champions League team, I have to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. I thought Wolfsburg would be somewhere sixth, seventh. Um, So I I think credit to to Wolfsburg because I think um, not just Oliver Glasner, and and he does deserve a lot of the credit because I think he's got them playing in a very effective way. Not always a pretty way, but it's an effective (laughs) way. Um, But also to Jörg Schmadke and Marcel Schäfer. And this, again, comes down to what we were discussing, the fact that in German football, it's the people who make these decisions with regard to uh, signings with regard to transfer policy who, who do deserve the plaudits. And I think they really hit the mark with mm. uh, with all their, their main transfers, um, you know, especially Maxence Lacroix, who I think has been one of the uh, the finds of the season in Fantastic. the Bundesliga. Yeah, playing in central defence, just just absolutely wonderful for them. And even going back further, you know, players like Xaver Schlager, um, and and of course Vechorst, but you know he's been there for a while now as well. Yeah. Um, so um, Wolfsburg, I would say uh, a, a pleasant surprise. I think uh, Gladbach have been disappointments because I thought they would be higher up mm. than they are. Maybe the Champions League commitments have had something to do with that, and then the uncertainty over the Rosa situation didn't help. Um, so I think they go down as disappointments. I think Union would be another one who have surprised because I for the life of me thought they would do well 
just to preserve the Bundesliga status. I thought that was yep. the priority, and it probably was. But to their credit, they've evolved as a team that they're not mm. the one-dimensional side they were in their first year in the Bundesliga. And again, that's a huge credit to, to Urs Fischer for being able to, to bring that out. But also, again, to Oliver Hunert in the background and having the boldness to sign players like Max Kruse. Um, I would say that Stuttgart, likewise, uh, have been a pleasant surprise and love the way they play. I, I think um, yeah. Pedevino Matarazzo goes down as, uh, if I were to, to name my top three coaches in the Bundesliga this season, he'd be in the top three. Um, because I think, yeah, the way he's... Um, He's got them playing is uh, is a delight, and um, he's somebody Stuttgart might do well to hang on to in years mm. ahead if this if this continues. I know they don't want to hear that, but uh, um, no, I mean he's he's been terrific again, helped by Thomas Hitzelsberger, Sven Mislintat. There's a common theme here, you know. It's not just about really? the yeah the coach who comes in and does something. It's about the structure you have in the in the background, and and that allows you to work. Hoffenheim, I think, have been um, disappointments. I, I again thought they would do a bit better as a and Hoeneß never seemed to be quite sure what he wanted them to be. I thought it was a bit of a sort of a hybrid um, playing style, but they're safe. I mean, I think they wanted to be more than safe this season. I think they have the squad, yeah, that that, that probably should have made them, you know, more than um, lower mid-table uh, side. So, so I would say that about about Hoffenheim. And then um, Augsburg, I think, should have been a bit more comfortable than they were based on the squad that they had, even though I actually thought they might be in trouble at the start. But then once yeah. we started to build the squad, I, I thought, well, that, that should be a better squad than, um, than just uh, barely uh, staying up. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you look at the, you know, the, the, the big clubs who have struggled, Hertha, who should, be, should have been better than, than they were based on the, the talent. Um, Kern, I, I have leanings in that direction, as some people know. Um, but uh, you know, they—I I thought they would be more like twelfth or thirteenth rather than where they are at the moment, seventeenth. And Werder Bremen too, I thought would be would be better. Um, but uh, here they are in a in a scrap for their lives, um, and we'll see what happens on Saturday at the time of of making this podcast. Schalke uh, were gone early on, and I think we. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew that once the um, the early performances came in. Absolutely. Very well summarised. And um, perfectly timed, actually, w- with regards to Schalke, because, of course, they are historically a huge club in the Bundesliga. And I think quite a lot of people probably could have seen it coming based on their, well, going even into, into last season and, and their dramatic loss of form after coming back from the coronavirus pandemic going straight through in, into the new season and obviously starting with that um, not ideal start, the 8-0 loss to, to Bayern Munich. And and yeah, it, it just spiraled from there. So, Derek, maybe just a quick word on Schalke, um, looking ahead to their, to their trip into Schweibundesliga next season and, and maybe some maybe cast some hope for any Schalke fans watching, uh, watching this. Well, uh... The hope would come in the form of youth, I think. We saw a glimpse of that in the victory over Eintracht Frankfurt at the weekend. And, um, you know, you can do it a number of different ways in the Zweite Bundesliga. And I think with Schalke, it's going to have to be with younger players. They're going to need some experience as well because you can't do it just with youth. But I I think that um, at the same time, Schalke fans have to be realistic and you have to look at Hamburg these last few years, how difficult it has been for them 
you know, massive, massive club to get out of the Zweite Bundesliga. You have other Traditionsvereine in there too, traditional clubs like um, Nuremberg and Hannover. You have Fortuna Düsseldorf in there. You have St. Pauli. Um, you know, you, you just go down the list. It's uh, it's difficult in, in, the, in the Zweite Bundesliga. And you're going to have not just Schalke, but you may have Werder Bremen. You may have Köln, as we broadcast now. We, we don't mm. know. Um, so this is going to be a difficult assignment. And I think it almost has to be viewed as maybe a two or three year assignment, you know, that, that, yeah. that maybe you consolidate first in the Zweite Bundesliga, because what you don't want to do is do a, a Kaiserslautern, as it's often said, and then, you know, go all the way down the divisions and mm -hmm. eventually have a, a fight over your, your financial future on that basis. So um, I think Schalke fans are quite realistic about it. I don't think they're expecting that they're going to go into the Zweite Bundesliga and just run away with it. You know, I, I, I think the finances dictate that that's, Highly unlikely, to be honest. Um, so it's maybe a case of just building, viewing it as a chance to, to build, to rebuild um, uh, with with Peter Knebel making a lot of the decisions um, off the pitch now. Uh, Ruven Schröder is in there as well, who people will remember from Mainz and from Werder Bremen before that. And it remains to be seen if they do have faith in Dimitrios Gramotzis. They say they do. And mm -hmm. certainly there, there were green shoots of recovery in the win over Eintracht Frankfurt. That's a good building block. But, um, yeah, uh, as much as I'd like to say uh, it'll be great for Schalke, I, I think it has to be tempered with, with some realism. Of course. Uh, and we'll, we'll, in a second, we'll just finish with a, maybe a highlight and a low light of the season so far for you, Derek. But just before we do, one quick question on and something we've already slightly touched on with regards to some amazing uh, runs of bad form that we've seen from a lot of teams so far this season. Teams have just suddenly collapsed in, in, in the shape of form. And maybe is that owing just to the extraordinary circumstances we find ourselves in at the moment? And maybe um, a mention to, to the lack or, or no fans that we've seen, of course, a huge uh, part of, of Bundesliga clubs in general. Um, so do you maybe think that it's all interconnected in that regard? I think we can't know as outsiders exactly what it's like for footballers uh, playing under these conditions. Now, on the one hand, you know, that they've actually had privileges that other people in German society haven't had, you know, so, mm -hmm. so, so there is that side to it. But on the other hand, it's um, playing in a, a different way, in different circumstances, and not really knowing how to react. And I think some players probably react better than others to that. I, I, you know, I was listening to uh, Niels Petersen, of Freiburg doing an interview not that long ago. And he was saying that for him, it's been especially difficult. He feeds off mm -hmm. the crowd. He feeds off that that uh, feedback that you get as a footballer. And when it's not there, it you know, can seem a bit like a training exercise or like a friendly. And you have to sort yeah. of summon the extra you know, motivation in, in your, your head to, um, um, to, to pull you through under those circumstances. So, so I do think that, um, you know, not for nothing have some of the, traditional clubs who who rely on that 12th man um, struggled. You know, Kern had that awful run of, you know, almost a year without a home win. And and normally mm. they depend heavily on that 12th man in Müngersdorf. You know, that's one of the most passionate crowds that you'll have anywhere in the Bundesliga. So I think that has, has certainly played into it. Absolutely. So we'll finish off this section then with a, a bit of a... Uh... 
a, a nice question on on maybe some uh, some highlights of the season. Or we'll, maybe we'll keep it to highlights. We'll not we'll not say low lights because we don't want to bring any negativity to the, to the show. So, uh, Derek, anything in particular has struck you this season that you've really enjoyed or or you've uh, you've seen as an outstanding achievement, so to speak? Well, I think um, we have to start with Mr. Lewandowski and um, what he has done on the goal-scoring front. I'm old enough to remember Gert Müller and to, <laughs> to have idolised Gert Müller. And I, for the life of me, thought that nobody will ever, ever top that 40 goals in a single season. How could they? I mean, nobody had got close to it. Uh, and, you know, you just don't think that that's possible. So, you yeah. know, if somebody scores 30 goals in a Bundesliga season, you sit up and take notice. But mm. it became clear from around, I think, maybe week, I don't know, um, 10, 11, 12, 13, that Lewandowski had a real chance of doing it. You know, that mm -hmm. uh, he was just scoring goals at a, at a an amazing rate. And yeah. the only doubt was when he picked up that injury. Um, and we thought, okay, maybe this is going to, to mean that... Uh, that Gert keeps his his record, but here we are now. The the uh, Lewandowski has forty and can get beyond Gert Müller as we speak mm. now uh, this weekend against Augsburg. So I, I would have to start with with, with that because um, I, I think it's a reminder to people as well not to take somebody like Lewandowski for granted. You know, I didn't take Gert Müller for granted, and I still. Mm put him on a pedestal when I think about German football at all. And uh, for younger people uh, who are listening to the podcast, someday, you know, you'll be able to tell, you know, people who are, are, are then young <laughs> when you're old like me, um, that you got to see Lewandowski in his pomp and, and how special that was. So I, I think um, history is hugely important in football and um, Lewandowski will, will stand the, the test of time. Uh, in German football history, no doubt about that. Um, some of the other highlights, uh, I mean, we, we've we touched on a few of them earlier on. Um, I, I think, to be honest, Dortmund winning the Pokal uh, just the other week there, uh, a club that had gone four years without any silverware and mm. had played nice football under Lucien Favre, but it took Edin Terzic to win them the, the Pokal. And you saw again what it meant to the players. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that has to to stand out amongst the achievements. It's not directly Bundesliga, but it is the, the Pokal, mm. which is an intrinsic part of the German game. And um, I'll give a mention to Union as well, because uh, here they are pushing for Europe, which was not expected, but they have done it against the odds. And that's always good to see. Absolutely agreed. I think um, I, I mentioned this with Mark when we were doing our show uh, on Sunday, actually. What, one of the highlights for me has come quite recently, um, and it was when um, they were doing a, a post-match interview with with Dardai after Hertha had confirmed their uh, their safety this season. And oh, he, the, uh, the cigar. <laughs> he managed to to bring out a cigar. I thought I thought that was a, a, a very funny touch, but I also loved it. Um, he was quite clearly enjoying himself, but that's good to see. We love to see characters in in the game of football in general. So, yeah, very much enjoyed that. Uh, and what a perfect way to to leave the season review. Um, so we'll move on to our last our last segment and and a segment I'm I'm very excited about. And now we've got. A bit of time or I have a bit of time to ask Derek some some questions just in general um, about about just Derek Ray and indeed your your um, connection with the Bundesliga so I'll start with um, a question that 
I've read about a little bit, but I just wanted to, to hear it from you in general, Derek, is that um, with regards to the research that you often do for, for commentary, you uh, you reach out to, to certain players that have particularly hard names to pronounce and you, you contact them directly or via their agent to then ask them or, or um, confirm how to pronounce their name. So I just wanted to see, uh, A, if that was true, and then B, who was the last player you had to do that for? <laughs> um, not so much with the agents. I have done it, but but not. I don't do that as a matter of course. It's really more finding a, a common contact. That could be a, a commentating colleague in another country. Right. Um, it started when I first moved to the USA. It started with me calling the embassies of these countries in Washington, D.C., because okay. there, was, there was no internet in those days. It was much yeah. harder to, to contact people. You know, there wasn't WhatsApp or... Uh, people barely had email addresses back then. Um, and so the, the logical point of contact was the embassy. Uh, it, it's always been a big part of who I am as a commentator because I want that name to be 100% correct when it's, um, when it's on the air. And um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's really where it comes from. It's basic respect. The last player that I had to check on that basis... To be honest, it's difficult because I, I, I'm with my various jobs. I'm sometimes checking about a hundred a day, you know. Wow. So I and I haven't done any for a few days. I haven't had to, um. So I, I, I can't actually tell you who the last one specifically was because they all sort of blur into one. But um, but there have been many. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've heard as well. Pl some players have have actually seen recordings back and and heard your commentary and and then come back to to thank you for. For your efforts as well is that that's something that happens um i think i saw a story when you were commentating on on scottish football a little while mm. ago yeah it happened more often when i was in scotland because in scotland mm. i was every week at a different venue and as the rights holders and i worked for bt sport at that time as the rights holders we have access to the kind of the inner sanctum so as a commentator yeah. i would always take advantage of that and basically uh, be in the tunnel area before, you know, two hours before kickoff as the players were arriving. And when mm. a new player arrived in Scottish football from a different country, from a different culture, I would always introduce myself and um, and ask for that player to, to say his name as he would want it said, not as uh, somebody had made it up somewhere else, but as he personally uh, yeah. would want it said. And the best example is um, a guy who actually had played in Scotland before. He'd also played in England for Brentford. He'd been at Falkirk and he landed at Dundee United. And um, his name had always been pronounced um, Farid El Alagui, A-L-A-G-U-I. Okay. Um, but yeah. I had suspected this was wrong because he was French-Moroccan. <laughs> right. And I'd, I'd suspected it was El Alagui. And um, I'd I asked him, I said, just say your name for me, Farid, if that's okay. And uh, he said, yeah, Farid El Alagi. I said, okay, thank you. I said, I'm going to call you that on the air tonight. And he said, oh, thank you. He said, that's great. He goes, I'm used to hearing it said the wrong way. So I said it on the air that night. And then um, we met each other again a few weeks later when I was back doing a Dundee United game. And this time he came up to me and shook my hand. And he said, <laughs> he said, ah, he said, thank you. He said, that was great. He said, my father was watching. And he said, it was so nice for us to hear our name said the right way so that's, that's what that's what i say to everybody who asks me about this they say why are you so fastidious about it i said you know farid el alagi there's the story yeah you know, yeah take it from you know we, we are we are meant to be in the accuracy business and you know it would be 
wrong for a written journalist just to lazily misspell a player's name. You know, you wouldn't mm. do that and get away yeah. with it. Somebody, so you know, we're broadcast journalists and we're supposed to get these things right. And I recognize it's not always easy that there are sometimes names that are very hard to say, but mm. the least we should do is is try and, and give it our all. I love that. The the attention to detail is is just goes to show why um, you're so well thought of uh, across all the different competitions that you have covered, um, which leads me on to my next question, actually. And um, just basically, what, what exactly drew you to um, the Bundesliga? Um, uh, is it a mixture of a number of things, the fans, the culture, the, the style of play that we see in the league, often lots of goals and lots of excitement going on. So obviously you've been a lead commentator on the Bundesliga for a number of years now. So um, yeah, what, what brought you to the league? Um, this is quite a long story. It goes back to my childhood uh, in Aberdeen on the northeast coast of Scotland. And one of the benefits of living in Aberdeen uh, was, and this would be true of anybody actually living sort of right on the North Sea coast uh, in the UK. One of the benefits was that we had a direct radio signal from Hamburg, from Norddeutsche Rundfunk. And from a young age, as a, as a German student at primary school, and I absolutely loved German. Uh, and much of that goes back to the 74 World Cup that was in West Germany. And mm -hmm. I became obsessed with that World Cup. It's the first World Cup that I can remember. Watched every game and wanted to know about the, the geography and about the, the culture of, of this exotic land, West Germany, which I'd never been to at the time. So then when I got to study German, that was right up my street. And then I realized that I could listen to uh, NDR from Hamburg on my radio and listen to more German and also to football in German. How about that for a young football fan, being able to combine these these things that were early passions. Yeah. And so I would listen to the Konferenzschaltung, uh, as it's known, you know, the, the live transmission of the simultaneous games in Germany. Mm -hmm. And that just opened a world uh, to me that was open to nobody else. I mean, my friends didn't, I would tell my friends I was doing this and they they sort of would furrow their brows and, and say, oh, okay, you know, that's a bit strange, isn't it? You know, listening to football in a foreign language. But to me, it was, um, it was just a magnificent thing. And so all these greats, um, we mentioned Gerd Müller. Um, this would have been a few years after Gerd Müller. But, you know, these greats of the late 70s and the early 80s, you know, people like Manny Kaltz of Hamburg, Horst Rubesch of Hamburg, Paul Breitner, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge coming through. All these players, I used to listen to them on the radio uh, in German. And so that's where it started. And then I studied German more and I went to work as a a language assistant in a very small school right on the border of West Germany and East Germany as it was, yeah. and did a lot of traveling as a result of that. Went to games in the Bundesliga. First game was in Frankfurt when they played uh, Bayer Uerdingen in 1985. Second division as well, which I still love to this day. I'm a bit of a second division freak. And um, yeah, so, so that's where it started. And this was in the, the time when German football wasn't then what it is now. In other words, you didn't have plane loads of fans from the UK or Ireland traveling yeah. on a week-to-week -week basis to Germany. It was unknown, really, to, mm. to the, the vast majority of fans in the UK. Uh, the style of play wasn't what it is now. The fan culture wasn't quite what it is now. It still spoke to me because I was a, a German student and a, a Germanophile, which I yeah. remain, of course. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's really only in, in, I would say, the last 15 years or so that you've had this kind of synergy with um, fans elsewhere who've started to see what German football is, have started to think, okay, I'd like to be part of that. That seems really cool. And that seems more in keeping with fan culture as we would like it. And of course, it's been helped by the fact that 
Um, flights have been relatively cheap from places like the UK to Germany. You can do that on a weekend and it needn't break the bank. In fact, it can often be cheaper than going to a, a Premier League game when you add everything together. Absolutely. So um, so I think, so I sort of, I, I come at it maybe from a different angle just because it, it's hit me earlier and yeah. it hit me as part of my love of Germany and German culture as a whole. And that's what I try to convey when I talk about the Bundesliga. And it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but it does seem to strike a chord with quite a lot. Um, but for me, it's part of the whole package that if you really want to enjoy the Bundesliga, you kind of have to also enjoy all things German. You have to mm -hmm. sort of see it as as part of the social fabric of, of Germany and what makes the country tick. And uh, I, I get great joy from doing that. And it always makes me smile when um, somebody comes back to me and says, oh, you know, because you spoke about the Bundesliga the way you did two years ago, I'm now, you know, all in. And, and it's mm -hmm. now the football I watch. And, and I love going to Germany. Obviously, this might have been pre-pandemic. Um, people haven't been able to go to Germany in recent times. But hopefully that can change again in months ahead. But, um, but that's where it comes from uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, just from doing this uh, the show this season, the Bundesliga show, myself and Mark have connected with an awful lot uh, of international uh, fans of the Bundesliga and lot, lots of Scottish fans, actually, which yep. has been really interesting and great to connect with with people. And um, it just, yeah, it just goes to show the Bundesliga is, it seems to, uh, certainly in the last few years, uh, really be, be growing worldwide. So, yeah, it is a fantastic lead to, to be involved with. Um, so moving now uh, into more kind of generic questions and um, obviously, Derek, you would have worked with a number of uh, co-commentators in, in, uh, in your career so far. So uh, just to put you on the spot, just to maybe name a few that you've particularly, uh, particularly enjoyed working with or have struck um, good friendships uh, as a result of working with. Well, there have been so many. Um, and the difficult part of this is that I'm going to leave some of them out, you know, because uh, I, I think somebody asked me recently, how many co-coms have you worked with? And, and I said, um, no joke, it's probably, you know, 300, you know, it, it probably probably is that many. Yeah. But maybe we'll, we'll stick with the, the, the co-coms who I've worked with most of all. Mm -hmm. And um, the one who I think, you know, really I should mention is um, somebody who was not a, a footballer, um, but became a really well-known broadcaster in the USA, uh, a fellow by the name of Tommy Smith, and mm -hmm. uh, spelt with a, with a Y and not with an I. So again, to UK um, listeners, he'll be fairly unknown. Mm. But Tommy basically, um, you know, great story, made himself one of the best-known broadcasters in the USA covering the sport of football. Hails from Dundalk in Ireland, very proud of that, has a distinctive delivery, distinctive voice, great turn of yeah. phrase, great sense of humor. And he and I were a team for a long time covering the Champions League. And I think for people of a certain age, are still kind of synonymous with each other. So it would be mm. remiss of me not to, to mention Tommy in this conversation. In terms of people who um, absolutely have nailed Broadcasting as ex-footballers, I'd have to mention Craig Burley, who is a good friend of mine and actually is a colleague at ESPN nowadays um, uh, in the USA. Uh, Craig and I were together, though, on broadcast in Scottish football for uh, a number of years, 2009 mm. until 2013. And Craig's commitment is to broadcasting. It's not to being a friend of, of an ex-player or somebody he played with. He will call everything as he sees it. And I think he has our respect for that and mm. um, and really understands TV and wanted to understand TV from the very start. Um, the great Gary McAllister, another one um, who obviously 
played with Craig for Scotland. Uh, you know, Gary comes at it from a different angle in comparison with Craig, but really tried to accentuate the positive at a time when I think Scottish football needed that. And yeah. and he and I were were you know good mates and good uh, colleagues uh, on that. And now, of course, he's working with Stephen Gerrard at Rangers and, and mm -hmm. having success there. Um, on the German front, I would I would have to mention uh, people like uh, Stefan Freund, who's uh, who's a good friend and was a great player, is a terrific character, and brings something to the broadcasts. Brings his personality to the broadcasts, which again ties in with what we spoke about with regard to um, the German feel and the um, the dynamics of Germany as opposed to just not just German football. Stefan hails from the east, uh, from the eastern part of, of Germany and has mm. something to contribute with the stories about growing up in the, the former DDR uh, as a young man and a young footballer. Um, Patrick Ovomoyela, another one, a former mm -hmm. Dortmund player who I work yeah. with on the world feeds quite a lot. And, uh, and, and, you know, very kind of uh, laid back style, but, but very good, very detailed and very informative, especially about matters Dortmund. So mm -hmm. they, they are just a few and I'm only scratching the surface. There have been many Absolutely. more, you know, people like Stuart Robson and Chris Sutton in the UK, uh, Lucy Ward and Sue Smith in the, the UK, Danielle Slayton in the USA at Women's World Cups, Ali Wagner, um, you know, down the list we go. Uh, there, there are so many. And, um, yeah. you know, forgive me because I'd like to mention them all. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. So we've probably only got time for one more quick question as uh, I've kept you for probably too long already, Derek. But uh, it'd be remiss of me as a big FIFA player not to, to quickly ask you on, on the FIFA series. Um, so you've been the voice over for, for FIFA since FIFA 19, if I'm right. Um, and I just wanted to ask you really how how long it often takes to, to record the voiceovers for it, because there's obviously so many different lines that you have to say and then add on the player name. Um, just, just an interesting insight into maybe how long it, it takes you to do that sort of thing. Well, I think it probably would surprise a lot of people just how long it, it does take. Um, yeah. I, somebody asked me uh, not long ago, they said, so when you do that, why do you just go in for a morning and sort of, you sort of do it all and then that's it all done? I said, um, <laughs> try try 25 days a year yeah. um, doing it, you know? And uh, yeah, and as you said, I've been doing it since 2019. So um, it, it's great fun and it's a great honor to be part of it and to work with a fabulous team, a fabulous creative and audio team. And um, we put our heart and souls into it. That, that's uh, that's the way that we operate. And as I said, it's uh, the last few years. It's been around, give or take, twenty-five days. Not all at once. You know, we're not yeah. going in and doing it all at once. It's spread over the course of several months. But um, but that's how it works. Wow, brilliant! So. That brings an end to this uh, this bonus edition of the Bundesliga show. My absolute thanks to you, Derek, for, for popping on and giving uh, us 50 brilliant minutes um, for this show. Uh, really appreciate it. I uh, hope uh, everyone enjoys it as much as I have done for this uh this last 50 minutes i could have asked you questions until until i was blue in the face um but yeah just just finishing off then um if it, if anyone isn't aware already obviously we're over the bar on uh, on twitter so go have a look for us obviously we'll be dropping this video uh on twitter and of course doing all the the regular bits and bobs so make sure you check it out and subscribe to the channel if not uh if amazingly you don't already follow derek on twitter go check him out he is of course the the source of information that i always go to for bundesliga for anything going on so go check him out on twitter as well but 
my thanks again, Derek, and uh, we'll hopefully speak sometime soon. Well, thank you, Rory. Best of luck with your endeavours going forward, and thanks for the conversation and the invitation. Thank you very much, Derek. Much appreciated.